Today's scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 1, first 11 verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you in heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Well, amen. Here in the next uh, few weeks, um, what I want to do is just go through the first few chapters of the book of Acts uh, with this series of Real Church. This is always a great time of the year to kind of refocus on what is the church and what's our vision and how we're going to apply our vision and and what are we going to be as a church. So we're titling it Real Church. And I really like these first 11 verses in the book of Acts. It's uh, really the first 40 days of the Christian movement, the first 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus. And it's kind of interesting because Jesus, after he uh, defeats death and, um, and everything, he spends 40 days with the disciples after Easter. So What's interesting is that in church traditions around the world, typically 40 days before Easter are spent with Jesus, whereas uh, in this case, it's 40 days after Easter and after the resurrection that Jesus spent with the disciples. Now listen, when I read these verses and I see these very first Christians in the world, uh, the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus... What I see is a group of people who had absolutely nothing going for them. Wow, I'm really, I'm popping today, huh? I'm on fire. Um, let's see if that can stop. Okay, I'll adjust it and see if that works. But they had nothing going for them. They, had, they didn't have money. They didn't have buildings. They didn't have lights. They didn't have video projectors. They didn't have really tall, good-looking pastors like me. Uh, they didn't have, they really had nothing going for them. They're in an obscure part of the world. Um, they've witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, and they have Jesus, but on a practical level, they have nothing to change the world with. And at the end of the book of Matthew, J Jesus tells them, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. And when we look at them in the first 11 verses, we're like, how in the world are they going to do that, man? Um, what? What in the world can they do? And yet by the end of the book of Acts, when you read the last chapter in the book of Acts, 
The message of Jesus' resurrection has gone all the way from Jerusalem to Rome. Uh, The message of Christianity has been a lightning rod for the Roman Empire. Um, It has changed things and is well on its way to becoming a world force in the world. And we ask ourselves, how in the world did this Christian movement and these Christian people with nothing going for them change the world? You know, when I look at Christianity today, I don't see a a world-changing religion. (laughs) When when I've experienced church, and I've experienced all kinds of churches, big churches, small churches, Holy Ghost out of the box, or dry Bible teaching in the box. uh, I've experienced all kinds of churches, big and large, in cities and out in the country. I can tell you that it's very difficult to experience a Christianity that you feel like is spectacular and is life-changing and heart-shaping and world-turning upside down. I really believe that when I read Acts chapter 1, these early disciples had something that we don't. And whereas we got money in the bank account and we have no debt and we've got land and we got buildings and we got lights and we got AC when we need it and we got heat when we need it and we got microphones. They didn't have any of that stuff and they're certainly changing the world. They have to have something that we don't have today. Or that we're not seeing in Christianity. And if you're an unbeliever, isn't it true that when you see Christians or hear about Christians in popular culture, you're not impressed? How could you be? Are you shaken out of some indifference to really hate it or love it? This Christianity in the book of Acts, this church, this real church, is the type of church to where people are willing to die for it or people are willing to kill it, chop off its head if possible. It doesn't leave anybody indifferent or lukewarm from believer to unbeliever. Man, that's what I want. What about you? I want that kind of excitement in my faith. I want to be challenged. I want to be... I want to be pushed into a corner of what they are. You see, they turn their world upside down. And if they turn their world upside down, these first Christians, this first church, then I know that there's a power that can turn my life right side up. I know that there's a power that can change people. I know that there's a message from Jesus that actually makes a difference and makes a as Steve Jobs would say, or did say, a dent in the world. So what was it? What did they have? Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, tells us a few things that the earliest Christians have that we must have to be a real church and to experience real Christianity. And if you're an unbeliever and you're looking into what is Christianity and should I believe in it or not, I'm going to give you the stuff that you can investigate and look at. And if you are a believer, this is the stuff you focus on. This is what we need as a church. Number one, Acts chapter 1 tells us that for a church to be a real church and to be powerful and to make a difference, it must be Jesus-centered. It must be all about, not some, all about Jesus. 
Now, I know some of you are like, man, you're like the youth pastor that was like, went to the youth group and said, okay, what has a furry tail and some fur and climbs up a tree and likes to get nuts? What is that? And the 15-year-old raised his hand and he said, I know, I know, I know. And the youth pastor said, what? And he said, Jesus. Because that's all the youth pastor talked about. Okay, that was not funny. All right. Jeez. The truth is, is that It's all about Jesus. Look at verse 3. Jesus takes the time and he says he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He spent 40 days with them. And I love that because he doesn't ask them, okay, I'm risen, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm checking out of here, you guys go do the work. The first thing Jesus is interested in with his disciples is not that they do anything, but that they sit down and learn from him and be in relationship with him and experience him. Church and real church is not about you doing anything for God first, Real church is about you coming and getting Jesus, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. Church is about coming and receiving all that he can give us that we cannot get or earn on our own. A new life. Constantly coming to church and exchanging the old life for the new life. Constantly coming to Christ and saying, once again I surrender. Once again I go through this process of conversion, of being turned inside out and giving my old life so that I can receive your new life. It's all about you. Give me what I need. That's real church. Churches can easily, we get into a church mentality, we can easily say, okay, i got to go to church, and what do I need to do next? I need to, I need to give money, and I need to serve, and I need to, I need to be a good Christian. I'm turning this off. How many of y'all want me to turn this thing off? Amen. See, they didn't have this. They did not have microphones like this, and they were probably more blessed because of it. Okay, that's probably not the right one. Hang on. Talk amongst yourselves. good am I good Uh, okay there we go okay okay where was I at oh Jesus okay church can become about doing a lot of things and being focused on a lot of things but the priority and the most important thing is to get Jesus that's the most important thing you know Augustine used to say love the Lord God with all your heart mind soul and strength and then do whatever you want What we believe is that when you're receiving Jesus, your desires are changed. Your feet want to go in a different direction. Your hands want to go in a different direction. Your heart wants to go in a different direction. The ethics and the morality of true Christianity is not forcing yourself to obey rules. The ethic is the result of gratitude, of experiencing the goodness and a changed heart in the name of Christ through relationship with Jesus. That's real church, and that is real Christianity.
If we make Christianity something else, then we become prideful, arrogant. We think of other people as less than us. We, we, we get focused on ourselves and what we can do, what we can prove, what we can work about. But here it is, and Jesus is saying to them, I want to spend time with you 40 days. I want to show you that I'm alive. I want to show you that I'm real and that I'm personal. And I want you to know that the essence of Christianity is sitting down at his feet and learning from him. Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is needful. Only one. And that's to sit down and to receive. Have y'all ever heard that verse in the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. And Jesus has written a letter through the apostle John to a church in Laodicea. And Laodicea, they're kind of they're kind of a church in a culture like ours, kind of wealthy. They got what they need. They got all the stuff that they need. They're living in a prosperous community. And as Christians living in that prosperous culture, they were lukewarm. They were neither hot nor cold. Remember what Jesus said to them. I wish you were either hot or cold. I hate this lukewarm stuff. In fact, it makes me gag when I put you in my mouth. But he says comfortingly and graciously, wonderfully, in Revelation 3, verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, when I was growing up, that was an evangelistic, you know, that was what you said at the tent revival. You know, you would call people to Jesus and you tell people who don't believe in Jesus, Jesus stands at the door and he's knocking. And you've got to receive Christ. You've got to open up your life to Christ. But do you know he's talking to Christians? He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. And he's saying to believers, listen. Every day I'm knocking on your door. Every day I'm wanting to have fellowship with you. Every day I'm wanting to be in relationship with you. And he's saying it to our church. Every day, every Sunday, every life group, every ministry, every food pantry distribution, every moment that you're together or wherever you're at, I'm always knocking at that door and I'm asking you, will you open up to me today? Can I eat at your table today? Can I be in your living room today? Can I be in your relationship today? Can I be a part in the center of your life? Because I'll come in and I'll eat with you. You don't even have to clean the house before you open the door. Can I get an amen? You know, I thought, you know, I remember my mom, you know, my mama, she, she'd invite people over and like a week before people show up, she'd stress us all out because she was so stressed out cleaning stuff and everything's got to be perfect for the people to come over the house. I know none of you are like that. And we think about Jesus coming, we go, I got to clean up my house. I got to get perfect. I got to, I got to do all this. He says, no, no, no. All you got to do as a believer, just open up. I'll clean house. I'll change you from the inside out. I'll change your heart and move in your life. Beloved, that is real church. And that is real Christianity. And that's the, listen, when, when Jesus is coming in and eating with you and fellowshipping with you, he's going to begin to work in you, turn you right side up and your world upside down. He's going to work through you and minister to people. He is going to do some stuff that's going to blow your mind that you could have never done on your own. Peter and these 
disciples, they had nothing going for them. In fact, all Peter had on his resume was that he denied Jesus three times when he was being tried. How many of us have denied Jesus? How many ways have I denied Jesus? So many ways. And Jesus says, that's all right. Just keep sitting down at my feet. Keep learning from me. Keep coming and letting me have fellowship with you. We've got to be Jesus-centered. We've got to lift him up. We've got to lift high his name. Read the book of Acts this week. Read it and underline all the times that the apostles kept telling people, it's in the name of Jesus that you can be saved. It's in the name of Jesus that we're blessed. What did Jesus say in John chapter 14, verse 6? I am the way. I'm not going to have you repeat today. Today is a non-repeating week. But if I were, I'd have you repeat that word, but you can underline it. I am the way. He's the way of life. He's the expression of what it is to be a human. He is is the full way of life. He is the truth. And he had said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And people say, what is truth? That's a big question of my generation. Postmodern question is, is there really truth and can truth really be experienced and can it be really known? It can be known and it can set people free because Jesus is the truth. He is the life. And in my own life, I know what it is to go through the motions of life without possessing the real thing. I know what it is to not have anything that's worth dying for, anything that's lasting. And Jesus is the abundant life. I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. You see, Christ-centered life, Jesus-centered life, that is true Christianity. And a real church is focused on him as the message and the power of God. So the first thing we need to be a real church and real Christians is a Jesus-centered life. The second thing we need is a spirit-filled life. Acts chapter 1 talks about the promise of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus says in verse 4, look at Acts chapter 1 verse 4. It says here, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? The first thing I acknowledge about this is that one of the reasons why Jesus doesn't want them doing anything is because Jesus does not trust these guys to do ministry or to do church in their own strength or their own power. He says, don't try and go and be the church without the Holy Spirit. You've got to wait for the Holy Spirit to come before you can do anything for God or anything for me. And at first, that's really insulting. It's like Jesus is saying to you and me, can you believe Jesus would do this? He would say, you know... I really don't trust you to have the strength to do what I'm calling you to do. At first, I'm insulted by this. Then I'm really relieved because it means I don't have to do ministry. I don't have to do the Christian life in my own strength or what I can produce. I can wait and I can be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. There's a great verse from the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah chapter uh, 4, verse 6. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. 
you and I are commanded by God to do all kinds of great stuff. But there's never a moment when we're commanded to do something that he doesn't equip us to fulfill and to obey in the Holy Spirit. You can't do the law of God in your own flesh. You can't do it in your own fallen Adam nature. You need the life of Christ applied to your heart by the Holy Spirit of God to empower you. We're called by God to change the world, to baptize all nations, to bear witness, to speak about the resurrection of Christ, to grow and have small groups and to preach and to pray together and, and to use our spiritual gifts. And we can't do any of it, not one iota of it in our own strength. We must all rely upon and be filled by the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that the Holy Spirit is really confusing talk because all, all kinds of things come up in our head and we... When we think about the Holy Spirit, I think about TV. How many of y'all think about TV? I think about TV, televangelists. Y'all, th- y'all thinking, y'all like he's a future televangelist up here. Y'all like he's going to start rolling around and throwing anointed oranges all over the place. <laughs> People are going to start falling out in the Holy Ghost. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, Sherry's going to start wearing big eyelashes and have really big wigs. I will not let her do that. <laughs> TV, yes, but no, no I'm joking. You know, the Holy Spirit is really difficult to tell you about, but I want you to know I'm going to do a series on the Holy Spirit here in several months, all right? I'm working on it right now, and I'm going to do a whole teaching on the Holy Spirit because I think it's this important. And, it, and I'm really pumped about it, and I hope you're pumped about it too, and you're going to be praying about it. But here, let me just tell you briefly about the Holy Spirit. First of all, it's not an it or a power, it's a he. The Holy Spirit is God. It's not like the force on the Star Wars, you know what I mean? The Holy Spirit is God. And what we believe about God as Christians is that God is one God but three persons. Now, people are going to make fun of you. You're going to get persecuted because of this because they're going to say you Christians can't do math because three does not equal one. But we believe in three persons that make up one God. And those three persons are separate but so united in essence and in divine attributes that they're all three God. And so united that they're one God. There's the Father and there's the Son and there's the Holy Spirit. Now sometimes when you can't really fully understand a person, what you've got to do is look at their resume. Can I get an amen? You know, when the search committee came after me to be a pastor, they couldn't know everything about me, but they could look at my resume and call my references. And so the best way I can help you understand the Holy Spirit in your life is to understand his role in his job description. The three persons do different roles. The father is the one who plans in wisdom the plan for the whole world and the plan for your life. In fact, the father sovereignly planned your life before the foundation of the world. The Father saw before the foundation of the world that you and I would fall. We would rebel in Adam, commit sin. And so the Father said to the Son, who has a different role and is distinct from the Father. The Father said to the Son, Son, I need you to go and accomplish my will, my plan. I have a plan and I need you to go execute it. The Son, in humble 
submission to the Father's will, said, I will do your will. And he came to the world. The Son of God became a human being. And he died on the cross and he accomplished the righteous requirements of the law because the Father had planned it. And then the Father and the Son looked at the Holy Spirit and said, Holy Spirit, what we need you to do is apply this plan and this work of Jesus to the hearts of people. To apply and empower them in this Christian life. To apply my plan and my will and even to cause them to obey my law which they cannot obey in their own flesh. And the Holy Spirit comes on all who believe in Jesus and he comes permanently to dwell with us. But he asks us to be influenced, to be available, to be filled by him so that we're not trying to live God's life that he has for us on our own. But in the strength of the Holy Spirit. You say, man, that's really deep. That's what's so great about God. Amen. Aren't you glad God's not shallow? Aren't you glad you can't put God in a textbook or test tube or measure him? He's infinite, and infinite means he's undefinable. He's beyond definition. So all you need to know in a simple way with childlike faith is that God is with you, and he will empower you to do his will, and he will empower our church as we depend upon him to do the will of God for our church. That's a real church. A real church is people committed to being spirit filled believers we must depend upon him we must pray to him we must be daily conscious and aware of the holy spirit he's our helper he's our counselor that's why jesus says don't don't try to do this on your own don't try to do this plan that I have for you on your own. Depend upon the Holy Spirit. You know, in my own life, I shared this with the first service. In my own life, I just discovered, I don't count years in ministry, but I just discovered recently, just thinking about, I was like, how long have I been a senior pastor? You know, I still feel like I'm a rookie, you know? Like, how long? And I'm not a rookie. It's really sad. I should be much better at this. I've been a senior pastor for nine years, which means I'm old and I have not learned a thing. And I began to realize that it's possible to really want to do God's will, but do it in your way and in your strength. You know, when I look over the nine years of ministry I've been doing up to this point, last few months, up to the last few months, I really have been more dependent on my strength and what I can accomplish than what the Holy Spirit accomplished. And God gave me this verse. I want to share it with you, and I want you to think about it, too, for your own life. But it's Romans chapter 8, a great chapter on the Holy Spirit, by the way. In Romans chapter 8, in verse 6, it says this, and this, this is what I think the Holy Spirit really, really awakened me to. It says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Now, what's it mean to set the mind on the flesh? The flesh is not like my skin, but it's the core of who I am and my own resources. And Paul talks about how he tried to fulfill the law of God in his own flesh. He was trying to be religious and to glorify God in his own strength and his own invisible human resources. And what Paul is saying is if you set your mind only on what you can do for God or what you can do in life on your own independent way, 
it will always lead to death. In a Christian sense, spiritual burnout. In a Christian sense, lukewarmness or indifference. But the mindset on the spirit is life. And that's abundant life. That's peace. And I had to ask myself, is my mind set more on what I can do for God? Or is my mind set on the Holy Spirit who's being God with me and working in me and through me? See, set your mind on the Spirit. In Galatians, he says, walk by the Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It's a great, by the way, the fruit of the Spirit is great to go with through your, with your kids. Because then I force my children to love God. You see, a real church and real Christianity is not about human beings doing their own will, their own way. It's about human beings surrendering and being filled by the very Spirit of God. And I know that's mystical and spiritual and mysterious and, 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 and almost non-concrete. But it's so important because the Holy Spirit will work in us and He will do things like you've never seen done before. A real church, real Christianity is Jesus-centered, it's spirit-filled, and finally today, a real church and real Christianity is mission-moving. It's moving on mission, evangelistic mission, to reach more people. He says in verse 8, the key verse really to the whole chapter, and the purpose for us focusing on Jesus and being filled by the Spirit so that we'll be good witnesses. Look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You could underline that word, Greek word, root word is martyr. You will be my martyrs in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And what he's saying is that a real church is focused on expanding, and geographically so, by the way, geographically an ever-expanding movement for God, a missionary movement for God, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. Listen, the whole reason why God calls his church together is not because the church is like a utopia on earth. The church is a group and a fellowship and a partnership of people in community for the purpose of mission. It's very important. You want to be a real church, this is the way we're going to become it. You want to become a powerful church, this is the way you're going to do it. In the Holy Spirit, we're filled by the Holy Spirit, we're focused on Jesus so we can be a community that is ever expanding and growing. The church doesn't exist for community. The community of the church exists for mission. The goal of the church is not that you know everybody in your own little church. The goal in the church is that you know somebody that you can partner with in the church so that you can help the overall church be a missionary movement for Jesus. You see, when I was growing up, I went to a church, and when they talked about missionaries and missions... What we always thought about was we always thought about overseas, cross-cultural. How many of y'all grew up in a church like that? You had Missions Week, you know, or Missions Month. And you always thought about the couple who seemingly was more godly than everybody else, and typically they were. Their children floated, you know. They never hit the ground. They were so godly. And you'd give money, and you'd weep for them and go, I am glad I am not them going to Africa, but God bless them. That's what I said as a kid. I don't say that anymore. It's okay. Don't write me letters. 
But I was cross-cultural over there. Missions and evangelism was something somebody else did. A missions committee existed for something else that didn't belong to us. Now, is this verse talking about that? Can I get an amen? Absolute to the ends of the earth. We've got missionaries on the ends of the earth. They're so far out there, and they're in such radically primitive areas, they're about to fall off the end of the earth. And we give over 10% of all of our giving to our missionaries uh, uh, overseas, and that's so important. And we got to pray for them and love them when they're here. But listen, what Jesus is saying is the whole reason why you got the Holy Spirit and the whole reason why you know about Jesus is so that you can be witnesses for the kingdom of God that's coming. You are a missionary. And you are currently living on a missionary field. The moment you walk out the doors, those sacred doors of that church, and you walk out into that parking lot and you get in your car, you are in a missionary context. Every school, every place of work, even in central Illinois, which is more conservative than the rest of Illinois, still people don't know God. And you have to do cross-cultural, counter-cultural, missionary work. And you've got to train your kids now to do it. Because the world they're growing up to is not going to have any more residue of that Christian, Judeo-Christian, ethic, Protestant, American thing. is going to be long gone by the time your kids and my kids are growing up. So we're going to have to train them to be missionaries. We're going to have to say, look, it's like living in Africa. And you're here for a divine purpose, and that's it. We're all missionaries. And we look at Acts chapter 1. This is a powerful church. This is what changes the world. See, a powerful church is Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem. Now, where is our Jerusalem? The pastor's wife answered this question rhetorically in the first service. (laughs) I don't have her here in this service. You know what? Our Jerusalem is East Peoria. You say, where's our Judea? We'll call that Chicago. Where, where is our Samaria? We'll call that the United States of America. And where's the ends of the earth? That's all the missionary fields out there. And what we've got to do is we've got to be a community. Now, here's the encouraging thing. The encouraging thing is this. Is number one, that we're not called to be witnesses on our own, but together in community. Get this. This is something we do together as a church. We equip each other. We're a missionary community together. And what we've got to grow in, and the vision of our church is to be excellent at equipping each other to be witnesses in the way God's called us to be witnesses. The truth be known, you might be used to bring somebody to Jesus by serving in the children's ministry. It's something the Holy Spirit's going to lead you in. There's above-the-line stuff, and there's below-the-line stuff, and there's life group leadership, and there's things like that. But if we, as a, as a church, have a heart to reach the lost and to reach more people and to say we're going to be an ever-expanding ministry, then we're going to become powerful. See, it's mission-moving. Now, I'm going to tell you about the life development of a church in America. Here's the life development. I'm going to tell it real quick. 
Number one, a church always is planted, and it's a movement for Jesus. And everybody's excited, and we got to reach people, and we got to baptize people, and we got to dedicate babies, and we got to get people assimilated and help them to learn the Bible. And everybody's all pumped up and moving for Jesus. And, Jesus, and the church is not defined as a building, but as a growing group of people. But then typically, a building program comes. Everybody say, well, don't say anything. Or land is purchased, or a building is purchased. And you know what easily happens at that moment is everybody goes, oh, we got a building and land, we're good. And everybody kind of goes, Whew. right? And a church goes from movement to maintenance. We're just going to maintain status quo. We're just going to keep doing the 10 things we always do every year. Here's the calendar. There it is. Okay, we're planning it out in front. Okay, we're going to show up on Sunday. La, 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 la. He preached too long. Okay. <laughs> and we get into maintenance mode. We're like, we're like a bunch of managers who are like we're clocking in and clocking out. And, and like it's no longer a movement about Jesus and people. It's about, uh, although I am very pleased with these. Do these carpets look good today? They got clean this week. That's you got to do that stuff. Maintenance is important, but when that's all you're about and it becomes a maintenance mentality, the church spiritually dies. Now, the church is very durable. It'll last forever in maintenance mode. It'll keep going forever because people will keep giving to it for some reason. The final death phase of the life of a church in America is it becomes a monument or a museum. It's the building that people drive by and said, once upon a time, there were people in that church that worshiped Jesus. Once upon a time, there were, there were these moments I had with God in that building. Isn't it sad that nobody goes to that church anymore? What a great piece of land. Or you drive by the building and it's an apartment or a condominium complex or a bank when you drive in Boston, when we lived in Boston, you drive by all these museums, these great-looking architectural dreams of churches, and their banks, and their condominiums, and their clubs. Because, see, believers got off of the movement for Jesus and the mission-moving momentum of the Holy Spirit, and they got into maintenance mode, and that maintenance mode led to monument mode. You know what we got to do when we read passages like this? Now, listen, you know, as a pastor, one of the great privileges I have is sometimes, not much, every now and then I get criticized. I know this shocks you. Every now and then I'll get, I'll get like some feedback that's like, you know, we really know you, know, right, in a very minor way. And I've gotten all kinds of, and maybe some of it's valid. You know, some people have been like, your language, you use that slang. And they get all fired up about me saying jacked up which is really jacked up. <laughs> Dude, listen, you know what? I haven't gotten one email. I haven't gotten one phone call. I haven't gotten one person in my office that said, what are we going to do to get more people to accept Jesus because people need God? I haven't got, and I, listen, I deserve that criticism. I'll, wait, I'll give you a free Mountain Dew. If you come to me with that criticism. And you're worried about jacked up. That's what you get from X. 
That's not real church. Real church is we are a movement for Jesus. We're going to reach more people. We're going to expand. We're going to see people become disciples. We're going to grow and get fired up. Next week, we're going to baptize people. I want my girls to see people getting baptized in this church. Don't you? I want my wife to see people getting baptized. I want you to see people getting baptized. Go and baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we're doing. I want to dedicate so many babies that we get sick of crying babies and yet we love it. Every week I want to dedicate new babies. Young parents, have babies. Be missionaries. Expanding and spreading the image and the glory of God and the goodness of his gospel and the satisfying taste of his presence. That's what we're about. And you know what? If I can use some slang and help people understand that, I'm going to use slang. Is there a lot of people out there, they don't have parents or grandparents who were in church. A lot of people out there, they didn't know. They've never been in a church before in their life. They don't know what propitiation means. When I say sin, they have no clue what I'm talking about. When I say you're jacked up, they understand that. We're all jacked up and we need Jesus. Who can't understand this? People's like, well, it's bar language. It means inebriation. Exactly. (laughs) You're spiritually drunk. You need forgiveness. And so do I. You know what it says in in Ephesians chapter 5? I'm having more fun today than I thought. (laughs) You know what it says in Ephesians 5? Don't get drunk on wine, but be filled by the Holy Spirit. How do I translate that? Stop being jacked up and get God in your life. And Jesus makes that available. That's what we're about. That's our message. You want pretty Christianity? You want inactive? Let's look pretty. And stand here, Christianity, there's a lot of those churches you can go to. In fact, there's two temptations not to be mission moving. Let me give these to you and then I'll be done. Number one, the one thing that will distract us from being a mission moving church is to replace it with a political Christianity. Political Christianity is not real church. And this is very tempting. It says in verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're like, Jesus, you're risen, and we are occupied by Rome, and they have really high taxes. And since you're risen, we were thinking we could use you to get rid of them and make our nation what we once used to be back in the days of Solomon. We want you to be our political solution. Oh, I know. It hurts me too. I want Jesus to solve our political problems. I so want to preach American Jesus, red, white, blue, God, guns, and guts made us free. And Jesus looks at the disciples and goes, what are you talking about? You know, you're limiting God and his kingdom to this little political problem you've got. And it is little in comparison. It's a drop in the bucket in comparison to the coming kingdom. So it's not for you to know that. What you need to do is be witnesses and be on, move, on, on mission 
to reach people with Jesus. I don't care if you want higher taxes. I don't care if you want a bigger welfare state. I don't even care if you're a socialist. I just care, do you know God? I don't care if you belong to my political party. I bet you can't guess what I am. I, every time I put my trust into politics and went, oh, Jesus, Lord Jesus, please bless this man and bring us back to a holy nation. Bring us back to the Christian nation that we once were. You know, every time I do that, those guys let me down. How about you? Every time. And then I started doing real history. I learned that Thomas Jefferson took scissors and cut the New Testament, take all the miracles out of the New Testament because he believed in a Jesus that didn't do miracles. And he didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God. And I went, oh, my gosh. I was taught in school that Thomas Jefferson was the most godly man in the world. Dude, there's only one kingdom, beloved. And we're witnesses for it. We are not citizens here. We are citizens to another world. We are alien residents here living for now, once we believe in Jesus, his purposes, and to bear witness to his resurrection. Don't let politics get you off mission. The second kind is gazing Christianity. I won't spend much time with this, but I love how Jesus, he's like, all right, I spent four days with you. And he like starts, he like starts rising. He ascends into heaven. He's like going, and they're like, rightly too, right? I mean, they're like, oh my gosh. And they're gazing. It says they stood there gazing. They're just like, And the angel says, stop gazing. There's a gazing Christianity in there. there. There's two forms of gazing Christianity. It's like the traditional, like, you go into the church, and, and it's like, be very quiet. Six stanzas of a hymn with an organ and a big choir. And you walk in, and you're like, And if you come in in jeans, they're like, why are you wearing jeans? You are a sinner. You know what I mean? And then there's like big communion tables and gold. And the pastor wears a row, which I always thought was kind of cool. And he talks like he just swallowed a communion rail. And he's like, you know what I mean? And you're like, Wow. Gazing, man. Just gazing. It's so pretty. It's so dressed up. You almost feel holy for a moment. Then you go outside and you're like, nope, still don't have it. <laughs> but I look good. Gazing. Don't let gazing. But see, here's the other form of gazing Christianity, consumer Christianity. This is a whole opposite end, but it's still gazing. It's the rock star show. You know what I mean? It's the like, we're going to go and watch this great performance and hear really loud music. And there's a beach ball. And there's smoke. You know what I mean? And kids are running around in the lobby with like donuts and sugar filled. And there's sugar everywhere. And both. Parents and children are on this caffeine sugar high, and they've got these big eyes, and they're wearing, like, boxers and a T-shirt. And they're like, I never knew church could be like this. <laughs> and they're playing music so loud 
And I do believe in loud music every now and then. Can I get an amen? But it's so loud, your ears start bleeding, and you want to bring your mom. But you're like, she'll go deaf. It'll be the final step to deafness. And smoke is coming out, and the, and the pastor is really tall, dark, and handsome, and he's really cool, and he's got, like, dyed hair or bleached hair, depending on his age. And he's usually got some funky facial hair that's less kept than mine. And it's so cool. It's 22-minute sermons. Can I get an amen? It's great music. The kids have a whole play yard thing. They hang from jungle gyms all for the whole 55 minutes of the service. And everybody goes, I never knew church could be like that. I just can go and be a spectator for the rest of my life. I'll just go and sit there. I'll watch the show. It's a gazing Christianity. Every member is a missionary, and you got a job to do. And I got a job to do. You're the walking advertisement, man. You're the walking commercial for Jesus. You're, you're the word spoken for the word of God. And you need to demand of me and the leadership of this church, what are you going to do to help us do that? Because I want that. I want real church. I want real Christianity. I'm sick of this fake, sentimental, non-impactful Christianity. What is the real church? It's Jesus-centered, it's spirit-filled, and it's mission-moving. Let's do it. We're going to spend the next few weeks, we'll talk about some of the early chapters of Acts. We'll get more practical. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, this day and just your word. And um, you have been extraordinarily good to us. As a church, you've provided for us. We do have land, and we're grateful for that. And we got this building, and we're grateful for that. And we're grateful for we got heat and air, and we got microphones and backup microphones when the ones don't work. And we're so blessed, and we, we want you to continue to provide for us. But, God, most importantly, we want to be a church that transcends walls and bricks and land. We want to be your people, your witnesses Help us to come and sit at your feet and enjoy your presence. Help us to be filled by your spirit. Help us to be on mission. Give us wisdom directly. Be our shepherd that teaches us how in our own small way, whether it's in children's ministry or life group ministry or just telling our friends or inviting our friends to church or going and telling friends out in the community, show us how we can be witnesses and show us what things are distracting us in our own life. Show us... uh, 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 the too much TV issues or the other distracting noises and and, and loud uh, thoughts that are interfering with us sitting at your feet and being centered on you, Jesus, and being filled by the Spirit and being on mission. Help us to know as families and as individuals and as followers what it is that we need to do. And then give us a heart and help us to see that we really can help people discover and develop a lifelong relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer today, let me be a missionary to you and call you to believe in him today. You can call on him from wherever you're at, in your seat where you're at, or you can come forward. I'll pray with you if you, if you need help, just guidance or questions. We're going to open up the front, and we're going to open up the front stage here in the, in the front pews. If you have something to pray about, come. But if you want to accept Jesus, come talk to me. I'll I'll talk you through it. Sometimes it helps to just publicly acknowledge, I'm I'm becoming a Christian today. 
Others of you, you got prayer requests, you got needs, or maybe you got a praise uh, praise report you want to physically respond to. Come, come and rejoice here. Come and pray here. Or you can pray where you're at. But let's continue to worship God and, and ask Him to help us with these issues in our life. We thank you, God, that you're with us now. Amen.